The contents discussed on this show are the opinions of only the speakers and do not reflect the official views of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or Air Force ROTC. This is the Screaming Blackbird Podcast, episode number 09. I'm your host, Cadet Matt Redboard, and today we bring a very special guest. It is Lieutenant Colonel Paul Lopez and goes by the call sign LOCO. So LOCO is an F-22 pilot currently serving as a DO, Director of Operations, over at Pearl Harbor Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii. He has experience as a demo pilot and he's also an alumni and graduate of our detachment, that's 605. And we're bringing him on the show. He's in town to be our dining out guest speaker. So we are humbled to have him in town and drop in his knowledge and mentorship for us cadets. And we want to share it with the rest of the Screaming Blackbird community. So I sat down with Cadet Hannah Johnson. Cadet Johnson's an AS200 getting ready to go to field training. She's also a North Carolina A&T student as well. And her and I peppered Loco with a wide variety of topics and questions. So without further ado, let's get right into the interview with Loco. All right, Lieutenant Colonel Lopez, call sign Loco. How you doing today? Hey, I'm doing outstanding. It's great to be back in Aggieland, uh, home of Debt 605, and for all our crosstown cadets as well. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, we're happy to have you. So could you give the listeners a little context of who you are? Tell us about your career background, maybe where you came from and where you're at right now. Yep. Uh, my name is uh, Paul Lopez. My call sign is Loco. I'm a operational warfighter flying the F-22 Raptor stationed at Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam. I'm um, the Director of Operations for the 19th Fighter Squadron. A little bit about me, I graduated from North Carolina A&T in December of 2004. I had a pilot to pilot training, and then I went off to pilot training. Flew the T-6 at Moody Air Force Base, and then flew the T-38 at Laughlin Air Force Base in W.O., Texas, and then right back to Moody for IFF to fly the AT-38. C model. And then I went to Tyndall to fly the F-15 C model or learn to fly. It. And then from there, I did my first operational assignment, the F-15 at Langley for about three years. And then I transitioned to the Raptor. Um, I've been flying the Raptor for 10, 11 years now. So and it's been awesome. Awesome. Love to hear it. So there's a lot of things to dive into. Catch on to you. Want to lead us off? Sure. So as a cadet that graduated from Dead 605, what has changed about the detachment and what changes were you expecting to see when you came back? Um, change, what changes did I see and then what changes were I expecting? I would say some of the changes that I saw were just some of the classroom setups. Obviously, the landscape has shifted in the civilian as well as college and ROTC environments uh, just based on COVID. So I understand you guys actually go to a different building for your leadership labs versus doing them in the classroom. But the classroom setup is very similar to what it was when I was back here in the early 2000s. I still can go in there and envision like the actual seat where I, that I sat in, um, in that classroom. And then also the classrooms right here on this hall about the same. A couple of pictures on the walls have changed and then some have stayed the same. So it's pretty cool to see some of the same pictures that inspired me to want to be a member in the world's greatest Air Force are still up, inspiring the next generation. So being a cadet from Debt 605 and being an Aggie, graduating from A&T, what does it mean coming from this detachment to you? Uh, a lot of pride. Um, there's a lot of history and there are a lot of great uh, men and women that have gone before me from this attachment and served in the armed forces 
from Army ROTC and Air Force ROTC to include our Crosstown cadets as well. So it's just very humbling and I'm honored to be from this attachment and continue to represent DET 605 while serving in the Air Force. Moving on from DET 605 talk, how and why did you become a demo pilot? Uh, the how is you just have to be an instructor pilot in whatever airplane you fly, whether it's the F-16, the A-10, the F-35, or the F-22. And then why I wanted to become a demo pilot, I remember vividly, I was a major in the Air Force, and I just recently PCS from Joint Base Elmendorf Richardson in Anchorage, Alaska, where I was flying Raptors at, to Langley Air Force Base, where I was working as the Chief of Flight Safety for the first fighter wing. And one of the, I knew the demo pilot at the time, and I remember he was doing a dedication pass, going from right to left, and just hearing the roar of the afterburners, feeling a rumble in your chest, just make you feel proud to be alive and be an airman in the world's greatest Air Force. I looked over to my friend who was watching a demo with me that day, and I was like, man, that would be a pretty cool job. Fast forward a couple of weeks, and my squadron commander walked up to me when I was sitting at the operations desk as a top three the day, that day, and he said that, hey, Loco, the demo job is coming vacant uh, next year. Let us know if you're interested in applying. And I went home, talked to the wife about it, and I told her that I thought that it would be a great way to continue serving in the Air Force, and it definitely did not disappoint. So what are like the everyday responsibilities, and what does, honestly, an average day look like as a demo pilot? Yep, uh, the responsibilities of a demo pilot is to showcase American air power, recruit and retain America's finest personnel, and then enhance international and domestic relationships within the community and abroad. Your daily ops tempo for a demo pilot, well, it all it's all based on kind of like a professional sports team, but in the airshow world, the demo season is from March to November. And you can expect to be doing 20 to 25 airshow weekends uh, because that's where the main business is at on the weekends when schools are out. So sometimes you may have two, three weekends in a row where you're on the road performing, but it's an all-volunteer force to include the enlisted airmen that get that jet flying and the maintainers. Typical day would be on Wednesday, you probably mission plan, get your products together, go on Google Earth and take a look at the lay of the land. On Thursday, you probably fly a jet out in the morning with your wingman about an hour and a half to two hours away. Uh, you land, probably fly around the city, fly around the airfield, do a couple of afterburner patterns and uh, just get the lay of the land. Then after you land, you get out of the jet and then you do a media interview just to kind of spark some interest and buzz for the air show and help out where you can. And then from there, you're, you're whisked off away with your team public affairs officer to a high school or a hospital where you get a chance to just go back and go out and give back to the community. And then you'll wrap up your day with uh, probably finishing up another school event later on in the afternoon or going to talk to the Civil Air Patrol about what it means to serve in the Air Force. So that wraps up your Thursday. You go and get dinner, go to bed, and then you wake up Friday morning. You go to a brief with all the air show performers. One of the cool things about being in the air show world is that it's pretty cool because you grew up watching them as like a little kid, but now your heroes are now your friends and you see them like every weekend. So that's pretty neat. Um, and then you fly a demo on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And then on Monday, you'll get back in your gym and fly it back to your base. Sir, do you feel almost like a celebrity in a way that you like, you know, you are putting on this grandos performance in front of a crowd and then you get out and you're interviewed? Like, what is that like? Oh, uh, it, it is exhilarating. I think that whatever you dream or think it would be like to be like a demo pilot i think that's exactly what it's like it's very, it's very similar to being like at a rock concert or a performance and you're the headliner and you quickly realize i think the thing that helps out demo pilots and teams is that it's not about you 
we are just the representative of the Air Force. And people are just enamored and they just want to be close to greatness, which is the United States Air Force and the demo team. So it's amazing how we come together as individuals. Our, our sum as a team is greater than our worth as an individual. So I like to tell people I'm just a pinky on I'm just a pinky on the hand, you know, on the pinky on the body and that when they see me, I'm just the person pulling the controls, but you have a team of men and women that get that airplane flying and keeping it safe for me. So um, it's humbling, it's very rewarding, and it's a great platform to inspire you know, the next generation of airmen. So you mentioned that we are the world's greatest air force. What do you think makes us that? Yes, ma'am. I think the thing that makes us the world's greatest air force um, is our leadership you know, and our attitude. You know, They say the attitude reflects leadership and I believe that, you know, you talk to any airman, you know, their morale is high, you know, for the most part, they're happy. I mean, being in the Air Force, you're working a job, but it is a profession, but you have, there's pros and cons to everything. But for the most part, you know, the message our leadership is pushing is to how can we get agile, light and lean to be more lethal and be innovative and taking the fight to the adversary? How do we deter the adversary and defeat aggression? you know, whenever the military instrument of power is called. And I think that the Air Force prioritizes things that are going to help us to be successful and having an impact with a successful mission while also investing in the airmen behind the scenes that are making the mission happen. So who are some great leaders along your way that you have seen and worked with um, that makes you believe that the leadership is the primary uh, contributor to making us the world's greatest Air Force? Yep, I think starting off with Chief of Staff of the Air Force, General Brown, and how he's uh, promoting the message and that philosophy of accelerate change or lose, you know. And, you know, you're always going to have not as many resources as, as you probably want. You're probably not going to have the manning that you want. But, you know, you can't let that deter you. You know, you have to find ways to get innovative and get creative and figure out, you know, how to overcome that obstacle. I mean, you look at the charge that President Kennedy, Kennedy gave the country when he say, we choose not to go to the moon because it's easy. We choose it because it's hard. You know, we ended up putting the first astronauts on the moon. And you just think about how much uh, society has benefited from the things that the Air Force has done and our other sister services have done to help out and contribute to society. What was your least favorite favorite assignment and what things did you do to change your attitude about them? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I would say... Uh, I'm going to be speaking about some some challenges uh, tomorrow during my speech. But I would say that I have not had a bad assignment. You know, recently, a couple of years ago, I had this 06 colonel tell me, he's like, Loco, he's like, it's great to have these dreams, aspirations and goals. But I tell you what, your current performance enables future opportunities. Your current performance enables future opportunities. And what that means is that sometimes, regardless of how bad you may want something or go somewhere, for whatever reason, a door might be closed and it's not going to open because it's just not meant for you to go on that path. But don't give up because you may go somewhere where that might be your third or fourth choice and not your number one or second, your first or second choice. But as long as you perform and blossom where you're planted, people are going to bend over backwards and give you the recommendation and get you the acknowledgments you need to get you postured where you need to go. So I'd say that I think it's a frame of mind that if you don't get something that you want or you're in an environment or situation that you don't want to be in, well, attitude determines aptitude. So change your attitude and show up every day, humble, positive, with a positive mentality, enthusiastic to learn and perform to the best of your ability. And also ask for feedback along the way to figure out what can you do to help you get to where you want to be and where you need to be. 
Sir, I can imagine that all these leadership lessons that you're dropping us, on us right now, you did not just uh, learn them all in ROTC. Um, of course, they came from a long journey to where you are right now. But what lessons do you remember distinctly from ROTC that has developed you into leader that you are today? Oh, man. Yep. Another great question. I would say that being receptive to everything that the cadre was telling me, you know, when you're younger, it's easy to feel like you know everything and that people can't tell you nothing. And you, you, you're dead set that you, that you know everything in the world, but we all have something to learn, you know. And I mean, there's a saying that when you stop learning, you know, you're dead. So for me, I just want to be a sponge. I want to be a team player. And and things I've learned here from the detachment that, that have stuck with me were all the lessons you learn as a GMC and as a POC, the things I learned at field training, as well as at the summer programs that Air Force ROTC offers where I get a chance to go and interact with cadets from other universities, sometimes even the Air Force Academy, and just sharing like best practices as well. Uh, one of the leadership lessons that really sticks out with me from here is um, I remember they had us do a, a goal assignment where they're like, hey, you know, over the next couple of years, we're like the top three goals that you want to accomplish. And for me, you know, my goals were I did Navy Gerati in high school and I felt like I didn't, I didn't really maximize my performance like leadership wise and do the best I could. So when I came here, I was talking to Mr. Rucker, our uniform custodian. He's like, hey, young fella, you know. Old Silverback, he's like, what, you know, what are your plans? You know, how are you going to maximize yourself and your capabilities and your talents? I'm like, Mr. Rucker, I think I want to be a cadet wing commander here. And uh, I don't know where that country accent came from. but <laughs> <laughs> And he's like, hey, man, go for it. You know, I think that would be awesome. So on that goal sheet, I put that I wanted to be the cadet wing commander of Dead 605. I wanted to get a pilot shot to pilot training. And I wanted to fly F-15s at Langley Air Force Base, which is the, my backyard. I grew up in the Tide Warrior in Virginia. And fast forward, like, five, 10 years, I'm, I'm PCS moving place between bases. I find that piece of paper with those goals. And sure enough, all those goals came to fruition. I was the, I was the cadet wing commander here. I got a pass out the pilot training and I flew F-15s as a lieutenant at Langley Air Force Base, my first assignment. So you set those big goals, you had those big aspirations, but you mentioned earlier that you have to perform well in your current state. So how did you do that? And like, what were the steps you took to reach those ambitious goals? Yep, the steps that I took in order to reach those ambitious goals are, you know, the journey to a thousand miles begins at one step. You know, how do you, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So you just have to know that it's a process. And I like to say, you know, don't focus on the end, but, but enjoy the journey and focus on the journey and continue to posture yourself. Um, tomorrow I'll talk about an equation that I use in life called, and it is that success equals opportunity times preparation. You know, and when you prepare yourself by knowing what's the criteria requirements for you to be competitive at your end goal, work from the target area back is what we do in fighter aviation. If we need to escort strikers in to bomb a target, we're like, all right, what target do we need to bomb? What time does the bomb need to be there? It's going to be a high value target there within like a five minute window. All right, let's just back up our timeline from there. And we eventually get to our starting point to where I know exactly what time I'm going to go into pilot rest the day prior. I know what time I'm going to show up to work. I know what time we're going to start briefing. I know what time I'm going to start my airplane, all to get me to the target area on time. So putting that into putting that equation into action is that if your goal is to get your degree and get a pilot slot or whatever it is you want to do in ROTC to be competitive for the career field you want, then let me figure out, are there certain courses that I need to take? Are there certain summer programs I need to get into? Are there certain internships I should volunteer to give me these skill sets that's going to help me set me apart? 
So that's what I mean where your current performance enables future opportunity. Well, how do you perform where you're at? Well, know what the criteria and requirements are at are that you need to that you need to perform to to, to demonstrate proficiency to get you to that next level. Um, when you were a cadet, how did your perspective about the United States Air Force and the military change from when you were first starting out as a GMC to when you became a POC to now as an officer? Yep. Uh, my, the things that change from my perspective are that the word process, you know, it's a process, you know, because everybody wants to come in and, you know, affect change and do X, Y and Z. But I remember reading an article from the wing commander at a uh, Hill Air Force Base, and she said, when you first show up, you have to listen to the people, you have to learn about the environment, and then you start leading. The thing that has changed about my perspective from GMC to POC was seeing, it was sad seeing the POCs graduate and move on, because then it's like, holy cow, like you see yourself marching up the ladder, and eventually you go from being a GMC to a POC, you're like, where are all the POCs at? But you're actually one of the POCs now. And it's pretty cool when you look back at the GMCs, you're like, wow, like I can see my growth in my experience and how to handle college life, how to balance priorities, how to kind of transition into adulthood, you know, in this crucible of a learning environment. But then it's, it's even crazy when you see the seniors graduate when you're a junior, now you're a senior. You're like, wow, we are, we are the POC. Like we are the foundation of the, we are the leaders in this organization. And we set the vision and chart the course to make sure. And our goal is to now have everybody try to graduate and get a commission as well. So, and then the way that translated into the Air Force was that applying all the lessons learned here, but then also being open to other, the concepts or philosophies of my peers as well. Sir, did you go right into UPT out of ROTC? I did, yep. So I left here, uh, my introductory duty date was 5 Jan 2005. And then from there, PCS to Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia, and checked in ready to start pilot training. But they were like, hey, whoa, you don't have a license? So then the Air Force at the time, they gave me three months. They're like, hey, you have three months, go get a license and then show back up. So I just left the, I left the base and found a FBO or fixed base operations. And I went and got my prior pilot license in three months. So there was no IFT. They just made you- Yeah, there was no IFT. Yeah, they, they just had everybody get a prior pilot license if you didn't have one. What was that like? What was going through your mind? And then especially like finishing up your private pilot and then going right into UPT. Like, did you feel behind? Did you feel like all set? Like what was going through your mind? I felt I felt all set. And I think the thing to put the listeners at ease is that if you want to be an operator in the Air Force and fly airplanes or the Air, or in the Air Force capabilities that they could take somebody off the street with limited flying experience and make them an Air Force pilot within a year to be a, a fighter pilot, a bomber pilot, a mobility pilot, a um uh, or a helicopter pilot, you know? So I think that's a testament to the quality of the instruction and the way the system is designed to get people flying. I did not feel behind. I felt like it just helped out to get that license. And it's just pretty cool to say, hey, I've got a, I've got a, a private pilot license. I can go to any airport and like get checked out, run an airplane, take people flying. And then after that, I was casual in a T-38 squadron uh, for introduction to fighter fundamentals. So I got a bunch of backseat rides in T-38s. Well, being in the United States Air Force, I'm sure, is not always the easiest thing to do, especially when it comes to working with other people that may be different than you, share different opinions than you. So what best advice do you have for us for conflict management and dealing with turmoil within your Mm. your squadron? Mm. Great question. You know, diversity is a big word uh, right now in our society, and I think that 
our diversity in the Air Force is what makes us great. You know, diversity of thought, diversity of background, diversity of ethnicities, ethnicities, diversities of, in education and location where people grew up. Because I think that melting pot just helps us bring different perspectives to the table. So now, as a leader, knowing you have that gift inside your organization of all these different perspectives, are you creating a culture and an environment to where everybody feels like they have a voice and that their frontline supervisor should be a safe space for them to go if they have a struggle? So to deal with conflict, I find that if I'm getting frustrated at something or a situation, typically it's because... I'm not seeing it from somebody else's perspective and I don't understand the process of how things are of how things are being done. And I'm sure they're being done for a certain reason. So that's where I have to step back and educate myself and, and take an unbiased opinion and ask the person who I may be in disagreement with is, hey, what's your perception on this problem? Like, what what are you trying to get to? Like, I'm trying to see, I'm trying to understand the strategy behind your decision. And when you approach somebody and say, hey, can you share with me the strategy behind this decision? Because I'm having trouble just understanding or processing it right now. People will, that, that's going to break down the barriers. And they'll be like, oh, man, well, thanks for coming over and, and talking to me. Oh, here's what I'm thinking. Here's my perception. Based on my perception, here are these different courses of action. And here's what I decided to go with And because I, I thought it would give me this result. Because sometimes, you know, when you're texting or emailing, you know, the intent of the message or the tone of the message could be lost versus if you're talking with somebody face-to-face and looking them in the eyes. So I want to dive back into some piloting things. So when you were at UPT, it sounds like you knew you wanted to be a fighter pilot. Oh, yeah. Day one, yeah. Did you want to track the F-15 where you started? I did. So I just knew like fighter jets looked just amazing and beautiful. And growing up, I wanted to be an astronaut. And I knew that astronauts flew the space shuttle, which was I think was the finest aerospace vehicle ever built. But those astronauts who flew the space show were test pilots, and most of those test pilots were fighter pilots. And for me, I grew up in Virginia Beach, seeing Navy F-14 Tomcats and F-18 Hornets flying around all the time. So that's, and just seeing those just flying formation, car and slice through the sky, I thought it was like the best thing ever. I'm like, I can't believe I'm living in Virginia Beach seeing jets fly. Like, I'd be at football practice, I'd have to stop and just like look at the jets uh, fly by, or I'd be leaving the mall or the movies and seeing the jets fly by. So I knew I just had this insatiable hunger and desire to want to be a fighter pilot. And so you tracked the F-15. You flew that for a few years? Yeah, I flew that for about three and a half years. So I have a little over 600 hours in the F-15C model. And then you transitioned into the F-22. Can you talk to us about what it was like transitioning from a fourth gen and then into a fifth gen? Uh, Yep, absolutely. I think it's applicable to uh, all career fields too because sometimes you'll change jobs or change leadership positions to where you're going to be taken out of your comfort zone. So I was felt very comfortable in the F-15 where, you know, you're flying a visual formation. As your flight lead turns, your job is to turn with them and don't go blind, which means don't lose sight of them, while also working your radar and making sure your radar coverage is where it needs to be so that you're able to pick up any low strikers or any bombers that are flying up high and protecting your flight lead six. And there, there are some systems and things I wanted in the F-15 that I now have it in the Raptor, which is awesome. So the thing about flying the Raptor is that once you get into the airspace, and your wingman leaves your site, you don't see your wingman if things are going well until it's time to come back home when you get rejoined with your wingman. So now you're managing or processing the battle at larger scaled ranges. 
So we had a F-16 pilot come on this podcast a few episodes ago, and he talked to us a lot about having or working with fifth-gen pilots and how they just have capabilities that F-16s and fourth-gen pilots just don't have. What are some of those capabilities, and what is it like sort of working and integrating the fourth and fifth-gen? Yep, some of those capabilities, I think an analogy would be with a fourth-gen aircraft, it would kind of, I think a bare bones we all have autopilot but the jet won't fly but it's like a fortune would be like a, your classic automobile you know just a strong muscle car and then now you bring in this car like hybrid electric car with all these like increased capabilities based on the technology on these airplanes so that's kind of how to think about like that fifth gen is like the engineers which i think is a testament to american innovation and ingenuity because we took the the best things from like the F-15, the F-16, the A-10, the F-117, and we created the F-22 Raptor and the F-35. The way we integrate with them is awesome because we make each other stronger. You know, if you guys watch Captain Planet or Power Rangers back in the day and how they, with their powers combined, you know, they can achieve the impossible. And that's what it's like when we get a chance to integrate with the F-15s and F-16s. The Raptor is pretty awesome. And I think all fighter pilots are probably biased, as well as AMC pilots are biased, whereas the airplane that they fly as well. Yeah, well, we had uh, Frags come on the podcast. He's an F-16 guy, and he was like, I love the F-16. He loves the, he loves flying it, but he was like, it's just not a fifth gen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep, yep. And, and you get a chance to fly against them one-on-one as well, and you can definitely see just that how much more power the F-22 Raptor has come out of those Pratt & Whitney F-119 motors. Each engine produces 35,000 pounds of thrust. So that's 70,000 pounds of raw power. Just Do you have any advice for newly aspiring pilots like myself who found out that they want to be a pilot a little bit later in life? Yeah, absolutely. I think, man, even if somebody was 70 years old and want to be a pilot, I bet chase your dream. You know, don't let anybody tell you you can't do something. I would say that continue to just feed the fire. You know, I think that's the great thing about technology is that we just have so much access to information. I mean, there's even people in pilot training now blogging or vlogging about what it's like, what a day's like for a pilot in different phases of pilot training. I would say, you know, take action. You know, tomorrow I'll talk about the saying that it's okay to have uh, dreams, but a dream without goals is a wish. So if you're interested in aviation, talk to pilots. Uh, figure out what books you can read about flying that they enjoyed and then just kind of figure out what kind of mission probably caters to you if you want to fly in the military do you want to go and rescue a downed air crew well then probably being a um, a rescue pilot may help out you know flying the jolly greens around with working with the pair the pjs um, if you want to be on an airplane with propellers and firing like massive like shells out the side and uh, cannons and guns, then the AC-130 may be for you in spec ops. If you want to shoot airplanes down, well, the F-15C model or the Raptor may be the airplane for you. If you want to drop bombs, um, then the uh, F-16 or F-35 may be for you. If you want to like sit right behind a cannon, then the A-10 may be the airplane for you. So I think it's just a multitude of things to do just figuring out like if you're interested in, in flying what exactly it is you want to fly or do you just want to go and get a license and just take people flying you know on the side you mentioned that the air force has very extensive technology how have the technology in planes changed from when you first started being a pilot to now oh i'd say that the way the technology in planes has changed drastically based off of it's more so the tactics 
So typically you'll evolve your tactics around capabilities or as well as the threat. So it's just awesome seeing the advancements in the missiles that we shoot, as well as the improvements in our radar systems. And then also just improvements with our networking as well, our ability to talk with other airplanes and talk with other networks as well. Sir, you are at Pearl Harbor Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii. I would say that's probably, at least for me, like a dream location. Is it everything it's, you know, talked up to be? Living in Hawaii and flying jets in Hawaii is pretty awesome. I tell people that the only thing better than what I'm doing is to be a lieutenant flying Raptors in Hawaii, which we have a couple of them. And I'm like, you guys are winning. You know, you men and women are winning. So, yeah, living in downtown Waikiki, flying jets. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Awesome. So right now it seems that you're living the dream. What would you what would you like to fly in the future? What would I like to I think that I'm I'm kinda happy where I'm at right now in the Raptor because I have over a thousand hours. I have like over thirteen hundred hours in the F twenty two. And I've got like over a thousand flights, so that's like a thousand starts and stops and briefs and debriefs or whatever. And it's pretty awesome because like I can make the Raptor dance. Like I feel like the jet really talks to me. Uh, when I first started flying, after flying the F-15, the F-15 buffets a lot. You can tell the energy state if you're low, medium, or high energy based based on your airspeed. Because the, the buffet you'd feel on, like, the wings feels like somebody's tap dancing on the wings or, like, an elephant jumping on the wings. But in the Raptor, because it's you're flying a, you're fly, it's a fly-by-wire system, so you're sending, anytime you move the stick, the throttles, or the pedals, you're sending an input to the computer and it's giving you a desired effect. But based on my experience in the airplane, I think for anybody whether you're in the F-16, A-10, or F-35, when you have that much time in an, in an airplane, you really understand the idiosyncrasy, idiosyncrasies of flying that airplane. But not only that, um, you also are humble enough to know that you don't know it all and that you're still trying to find that perfect sortie. So I'm still trying to become a better Raptor pilot every single time I get a chance to fly because that perfect sortie it's still eluding me, but I know it's out there somewhere. And you know what? When you aim for, for perfection, you fall short you're in the realm of excellence. And like the Air Force, one of our core values, excellence in all we do. I think it would be cool if uh, the SR-71 came back. I'd love to fly that. I think it'd be cool to fly the space shuttle. And I think it'd be cool to fly the next generation air dominance fighter, the NGAD. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about the NGAD um, and see if there was any interest there for you. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, if I had the opportunity of that, I think that'd be a pretty cool one to fly, but I don't even know what it looks like, so. (laughs) (laughs) True. What types of tricks or movements have you done in shows that are particularly your favorite or that you want to do in the future? Yes, I think the tricks that I've done in the airshow world, uh, well, when you, fly, when you fly jets, you go upside down every time you fly if you want to because you're mayor of cockpit city. So it's like, oh, I just want to go upside down, then move the seat to the left or right and just do a loop or, or not a loop, but like do an aileron roll. You know, if you want to go supersonic, just push the power up and go faster in the speed of sound within the appropriate areas. But when I was on the air show circuit, a maneuver that I like to do, two of them, one was the tail slide where you see the airplane go up and we start at a thousand feet and then you see the airplane essentially slow down and sliding side rate going up. It looks like it's stopping. Then the airplane would stop at around 3000 feet and it, for a moment in time, the airplane would just kind of apex right there and just stop. And to the crowd, they say the airplane stops, but there's still a little bit of forward momentum, but not much. And then the jet would hang there. You'd probably be less than 70 knots, or as the airspeed goes through, about like 70, 75 knots. Uh, going sliding backwards, you push forward and with thrust vectoring, you get the nose to go back down. And you start flying away out of that maneuver, which was just amazing. The other one was the pedal turn, where 
we'd be at about 350 miles an hour at 300 feet above the ground. And then as you're approaching the center of the crowd, you're gonna increase the back stick pressure on the stick to get the nose going straight up to 90 degrees nose high. Once you get your going 90 degrees nose high, you relax the back stick pressure into neutral, and then you do an aileron roll going into vertical. And then now you're gonna call out a number. So for this maneuver I like to do is the 180-180 pedal turn. And essentially we would at 5,000 feet above the ground, you'd pull back on the stick as hard as you can, straight back, and the airplane would do a high level attack loop and essentially go post stall. And then you see the airplane rotate 180 degree turn to the right. And then you move your controls. So you go from all the way back and step on the pedal with full lateral stick and pedal. And then you go all the way back to the left side and step on the left one. You see the jet just rotate. And it's all the fly-by-wire system and the computers in the jet, which is like a testament to American innovation and ingenuity. It's amazing. So what role does thrust vectoring actually play in like the avionics of an aircraft, especially or in the F-22? Uh, the thrust vectoring in the aircraft is, uh, do you believe if I said his voice activated? They send us down to Florida and they, uh, they record your voice parametrics and they put it in the jet and you say, Raptor, engage thrust vector. No way. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I wish the listeners out there could have been in a room to see your faces. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, but the thrust vectoring, it's, it's an additional flight control. So kind of like your elevators or your flaps your, or your, um, your leading edge flaps. Yeah, it's, it's all automated by the computer just to give you that increased pitch authority because the jet can weigh up to 60,000 pounds and the Raptor can do a loop inside of a quarter mile. So think about that. If you rolled out the uh, track just straight, the Raptor could do a loop inside of that distance. Are there any concerns in like over the aircraft with that? Uh, no. So the engineers have done a great job in, with the flight control system to uh, limit your, uh, your G available and based on your fuel weight and uh, the density altitude as well. However, if you're below 5,000 feet, you have to keep an eye on it because you can potentially beat the system. How have your experiences flying at different bases? What was the difference between each one? Oh, man, yeah. I think the difference between PCSing to different bases are getting a chance to see different cultures, different experiences. Like we talked about before, just the, the diversity at different locations. Uh, I think that's one of the beauties about serving in the United States Armed Forces is that you get a chance to like leave your comfort zone and go places you probably would never would have moved to by yourself. But because you have a job to do and service to our nation, we get a chance to experience these locations. So you get a chance to see how the different MPFs work. You get a chance to see how different support services on base come together to make the mission happen. And you get a chance to meet new friends too. You know, you get the, the CGO council, you know, you got a bunch of other organizations if, if you need to meet friends. As a pilot, what is your rapport behavior with non-pilots? Oh, what is my rapport behavior with non-pilots? I think you're starting to stoke, get me to stoke the bear, huh? Poke the bear. <laughs> uh, my, my rapport with non-pilots, I think is great, you know, because I think based on where I'm at in my career, you know, I need everybody on the team. Everybody contributes equally to the team, and we're all here to do a job. And like I said before, your current performance enables future opportunities. So everybody has desires of what they want to do like on their next assignment or within the current assignment. But for the mission that we have to do now, we need everybody to be on their A game and to have the mission at the forefront of their mind while taking care of their people at all times. So 
I think my relationship with non-pilots is that I'm like a sponge and I'm just trying to learn as much as possible. And every day I show up to work, I'm humble with a positive attitude and enthusiastic to learn. And I find that, hey, so talk to me about how like your job contributes to the mission or what obstacles are you experiencing in your job? Because when you figure out what, what hardships people are dealing with or the obstacles they're dealing with, if you're in a position or have the resources to help them out, I mean, you're going to build a friend for life right there because it's all about helping each other out. And vice versa, there are some things that non-pilots can do that I can't do. So, for example, if one of uh, my warfighters has issues with the legal office or getting an appointment at the NPF, you know, I can call the NPF commander or my counterpart there and, and ask them, hey, and get some background on what what may be the issue. Because sometimes you may not have the whole story at your level, so that young warfighter may not know that, hey, on Thursdays, at 16, 15, 1600, the NPF is going to close down to do training for their new airmen. So don't get frustrated. It's just the way the process is. But I talked to the talked to my counterpart and they said you can set up for an appointment uh, for tomorrow at noon. And they'll take care of you. Sir, being a pilot in the Air Force, do you feel an extra added responsibility that you're sort of like the tip of the spear of the mission, so to speak? Oh, yes. Yep, absolutely. You know, because whenever at least for the Air Force, whenever the military instrument of power is called, um, you know, our tenets of the Air Force are global vigilance, global reach, and global power. And with what I do in the Air Force with my uh, job, you know, I'm, a, I'm on that global power kind of branch. So every day I train because there's no second place when it comes time to put warheads on foreheads. So you definitely feel that pressure. I think that's the beauty of regardless of where you're at, Everybody's trying to do their best and hopefully by everybody doing their best it makes them the best. And now when everybody's performing at that high level, that's how you transcend an organization. Sir, is there a a highlight moment or highlight story in your career um, that really sticks out in your lecture? Yes. I think a highlight story in my career is when I faced some adversity in a situation And there was some disappointment and frustration and how I overcame that obstacle and hurdle with the help of other people. And then like the Phoenix, like just powering out that situation and good things came from it. And the best thing about going through that. So the situation was that I was in an upgrade and in the Air Force, you have the standards that you have to perform to and demonstrate proficiency. Otherwise, if you don't, you know, you're going to continue to repeat that task. And the Air Force only has so many resources to allocate to every person when they're in training. So that's why you always want to do your best and not take things lightly because you want to do your best you can get through that, get through that process. That way somebody else can roll in and you're not backing things up. Well, my performance was such that I needed to take a break. And it was it was very tough, you know, because nobody wants to be that that man, that woman that's struggling. Right. Nobody wants to be that guy that do that, do that. But I, I was that guy. And it, it was tough because when you're so used to just winning and succeeding and then you get hit in the face with a challenge or adversity and now you're that person, you're like, oh, my goodness. And you think that the world is crashing around you, but it's not. It's easy for us to put this perceived pressure on ourselves that we have to be on our A game at all times, which I think that's awesome to want that. But also know that if you fall short, that don't beat yourself up over it. You know, give yourself about 24 hours to vent, have a team of trusted advisors around you who you can talk to and share your and vent. Because I say that it does you no good to go over through life emotionally constipated. 
You got to let people know, hey, I'm frustrated. I'm upset. I'm angry. Ah, here's a situation. And now they're going to love you. They're good. They're not going to judge you. They're just going to listen to you. And the key thing, the cool thing is they'll give you perspectives that you may not even thought about. But they're just going to empathize with you. So with this situation, I wasn't meeting the performance in this flying upgrade. So, hey, we're going to take a break. And I'm like, oh, no, that's the last thing I wanted to take a break. And um, so I end up having to take a break in this organization. I end up uh, PCS into another organization where eventually I got back into the upgrade. I powered, made it through, got through that, that tough time. Fast forward, I become an instructor pilot in Alaska. And then I PCS uh, back to Langley to the organization where I was struggling in this one upgrade. And, you know, I'm an instructor pilot now, so I'm out there teaching academics, teaching flying, being in the simulator teaching as well. And they ended up uh, nominating me for the instructor pilot of the year for the squadron. So I ended up winning instructor pilot of the year for the squadron and instructor pilot of the year for the first fighter wing. And that was the same location where I faced one of my greatest challenges. I had to, and I had to get sidelined for a little bit. But through grit determination, perseverance, prayer, having a great team of trusted advisors around me, like the Phoenix I rise. And I was able to continue to grind, work hard, make it through the upgrades, become an instructor pilot, and come back to the place where I had faced one of my greatest challenges and perform to a level to where my peers and supervisors thought that I was deserving, that I had earned that instructor pilot of the year. Awesome. Well, congratulations on that. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. But it's just, you know, you keep on figuring out how you can get better. You know, how can I, what's what's my student's learning style? You know, are they a visual learner? They like to talk? They, they, do I need to draw stuff on the board? Do I just need to give them stuff to read? So I find that the art of being a great instructor is knowing what your student's learning style is and catering to that to bring out their best. As a demo pilot, what do you feel that you bring to the mission? Yep. So uh, when I was a demo pilot, I guess you guys, I guess you guys still see me as a demo pilot. Cause well, we see the YouTube videos and everything. Oh, I didn't even know the detachment had that. But uh, yeah, so um, as a demonstration pilot, I think that the things that you bring to the table is that you have all these experiences, right, from the diverse group of people who you've worked with in your career up until that point. So now you have this platform, uh, like you alluded to earlier, uh, when you get done flying the airplane, you're ready to run through a brick wall, you get the crowd like, yeah, they're high-fiving, they want you to sign their hats, their babies, autographing t-shirts and posters, but you're able to use that as an opportunity to divert and deflect the attention away from yourself and to your fellow airmen and talk about the other airmen stories and bridge the gap to be like, hey, that was thank, thanks for being out here supporting the demo team, but man... Let me let me let me just brag on my maintenance team, because without them, without them servicing, taking care of this airplane, I would have an airplane to fly. Um, let me tell you about my these airmen behind the scenes that are working in the tower. Let me tell you, talk about the airmen who got the weather for us today. Let me talk about the airmen, the security forces, defenders that are defending the gates and the, and the flight line right now. Let me talk about the, the airmen that are working in a dining facility that are feeding the war fighters. So everybody plays a role. So I think. Um, as a demonstration pilot or being part of a demo team, you're really able to promote the team and how just awesome the Air Force is and how the Air Force just provides a tremendous amount of opportunities for everybody. How has the responsibility or your expectations changed from when you first became a second lieutenant to now? <laughs> My expectations have changed in that I would say I think more of like a, 
like being more grounded in my leadership philosophy. I think what has changed is that my emotional intelligence has increased and my empathy has increased because we're, we're just humans at the end of the day and we all have good days and bad days. And when you can, when somebody's going through a tough time in life, whether it's something they can control or can't control, like, can you see things from their perspective and not judge them, but be there to support them? And do you, are you knowledgeable about the resources that the Air Force has to help them out through whatever tough time they're going through? Because a lot of times people don't need us to solve their problems. They just want us, they just want somebody to listen to them and just know that somebody respected them. They were professional towards them and they just listened to whatever they had to say. I think it's very valuable and insightful when the cadre, when you're in ROTC or um, when you're going through college at the academy as well, or OTS, where they're like, hey, as a brand new officer, find that senior enlisted member at NCO. A senior NCO and latch on to them. Like they're going to be professional, they're going to respect you uh, there, but they have so much experience in life and in the military that you can just glean from. And if you're just humble and you show up to work with a positive attitude, enthusiastic to learn, they will invest in you and give you the skills that you need to be successful as leader in the Air Force. Did you feel like you had a lot of opportunities as a pilot to do that? Uh, no, because as a pilot, you really have to go out and seek and seek that just based on one year as a pilot for your first two years. Every day, you're just essentially surrounded by uh, other officers who are going through pilot training. They are enlisted in the squadron, but they're more behind the scenes uh, working on your flight gear and uh, aircrew flight equipment or as a squadron aviation resource management to make sure your paperwork's good to go. So you're not really... Except for, I think, if you're working on a crew airplane in Air Mobility Command or Spec Ops, then you probably may get more of those opportunities. But uh, you just have to go out there and seek them. And I think there's a great quote out there that says that not all readers will be leaders, but all leaders are readers. And you know what? Like, there, there's just some things you have to do on your own with your own self-education because you just you can't rely on somebody or an institution that teach you, everything, teach you everything you need to know. So like Confucius said, know thyself. Like know what your strengths and weaknesses are and pick up books about leadership that interests you. Awesome. All right, well, Loco, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and thank you so much for coming back to Detachment 605. We can't wait to hear your speech tomorrow. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Oh, no problem, no power. Yes, sir.